Welcome to Living With, a podcast by Health Union that explores what it's like to live with a chronic health condition. Health Union integrates the power of human connection and technology, uniting people in the shared experiences of life with chronic health conditions. I'm Emily Downward. I recently spoke with Abigail Johnston, one of Health Union's contributors to advancedbreastcancer.net. Abigail is living with metastatic breast cancer, which means it has spread to other parts of the body and is incurable. On the day we spoke, Abigail had just gone for a PET scan to see if the new treatment she started a few months before was stopping or slowing the cancer's growth. And she was taking the call from her car, as she explained to me, because after a PET scan, you are radioactive for several hours. I mean, they say five feet. As long as you stay five feet away from people, it's okay. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> how long How long are you radioactive for? So, it, they say 24 hours to be entirely sure, which is why I always spend the night away from my family after a PET scan. Yeah. Oh, gosh, that's so, so hard. Although I got a really, I try to get, like, nice hotels for, you know, cheap because it's, like, you know, during the week and stuff like that, so... Tonight, I'm staying in a hotel room that normally costs $700 a night, <laughs> but I got it for $150 because it's just, you know, a random day. So, yeah. Wow. So I, I tried to make it, you know, somewhat fun, but yeah, it's not fun to have to stay away from them, but they don't know what the effect of radiation is on children. Yeah. And so it, because they don't know, I err on the side of not exposing my children to radiation. I, that, yeah, that's totally smart. <laughs> wow. I didn't even realize that. Yeah. I didn't realize it either until my first PET scan. And then all these really kind people were saying, Hey, come over, blah, blah, blah. But then I, it occurred to me if children are at risk, then animals would be also. And so I called them and I'm like, okay, so someone has a small dog or a cat. Is that an issue? And they're like, Oh yeah, it probably is. But they don't tell anybody that. Oh, my god! I don't know. I, I, you know, their, their thing is just stay five feet away. But, I mean, my cat, she's like, lays on top of me all night. And yeah. as do my children. So, <laughs> And probably your husband occasionally, too. So, <laughs> we, have, we have a very crowded bed. <laughs> that sounds kind of nice, though. It's very cuddly nice and warm. To, yeah, surrounded by love. Exactly. <laughs> When Abigail was diagnosed with breast cancer, she was 38 years old and still breastfeeding her two and four-year-old sons. Initially, she was told she had stage two breast cancer, that is, confined to the breast. But due to a fortunate mistake, she was given a blood test that she normally wouldn't have received at that time that indicated the cancer had likely spread to the bones. And it was at my very first chemo appointment that they made a mistake and accidentally checked my tumor markers. And long story short, a week later, we found out that I had been stage four from the beginning, that my cancer had actually spread through my blood, not my lymph nodes. And so when I had my lumpectomy and they checked my lymph nodes and there was no cancer there, they said, oh, you're free and clear. No worries. We got all the cancer. Um, only to find out quite by accident that um, it had already spread to uh, my bones. So um, I'll never forget, I went in for a skeletal survey, which is basically they take an x-ray of every single bone in your body. And the tech 
who I will never say her name because she will get in trouble for this. She like ran out of the little booth and was like, I could get fired if I, if you tell on me, she's like, but I have to tell you, you have to stop walking, stop walking right now. Because I had a five centimeter tumor in the, in the middle, which like of the weakest part of my right femur and my, my right femur was just about to shatter, which is apparently how a lot of people with bone mets get diagnosed is because something breaks, they go to the, or something hurts. Uh, I had six, uh, I had six ribs that had broken because they had mets. They call them pathological fractures. I never, I never registered that my ribs were broken. I I mean, it wasn't like they, it was, I was in pain. Um, I was in pain. I, on my leg, I was limping and I had been limping for even before I found the lump in my breast. So the lump in my breast was only two centimeters. The lump in my, or the lesion or tumor or whatever they call it in my bone is five centimeters. So I had been walking around on um, a tumor in my femur that was about to break my bone for months. And so that was a huge object lesson to me uh, because as I started going down the breast cancer route, I never told anybody my leg hurt. I mean, I figured my breast cancer is in my breast. Like, I'm just going to focus on that. Like, I'm not talking about, oh, my leg kind of hurts sometimes, especially when I'm walking up and down stairs. But in hindsight, and now I'm super careful about this, I should have been telling them from the beginning because they took me telling them, oh, I'm fine otherwise as how they made treatment decisions, how they made decisions about whether or not they were going to scan me further before things. Now, um, I'm not not upset. I just use that as an object lesson going forward that doctors don't know unless you tell them what your symptoms are. And and my treatment probably wouldn't have been much different even if I had told them, but we would have known sooner. Um, So a week after finding out I was stage four, I was in surgery they put uh, titanium rods inside my both femurs. Um, so, so I wasn't walking for a week, then I had the surgery, and then um, it wasn't like I had to learn to walk again, but I was not walking for a substantial amount of time, um, almost a month probably. Wow. So, and you know, had the little, you know, the little portable commode by the bed, so I didn't have to, you know, move so far. I mean, we had to make a lot of adjustments. Um, and then I was walking with a walker. My parents got me one that had like pink flowers all over it, which um, anybody who knows me thinks that's hilarious because I am not a girly girl. So <laughs> it's pretty funny. I had this bright pink flowery walker. Um, and then I had a cane for a while, but it took me quite a while before I could climb stairs. Um, so anyway, it was, it was a big disruption um, in my mobility, especially so um, that was the end of June of 2017. And then, uh, so I finished chemo, which I had the red devil, so lost my hair. Um, and uh, it was actually, it was Florida and it was the summer. So not having hair was cooler, it was great. Never wore a wig, I wore a wig one time. Otherwise I just walked around bald. Um, and then I had a hysterectomy. Uh, my cancer in particular is um, strongly hormone driven. So um, they took out everything. So I don't have to worry about any of that because in the midst of all of this, we found out that we have a germline mutation in our family. Uh, 
BRCA, BRCA mutations are the most well-known. Uh, but in my family, we have the ATM mutation, like you get money from the ATM. <laughs> um, and it's pretty much linked to all of the cancers that are hormone-driven. So prostate cancer, ovarian cancer, breast cancer, pancreatic cancer is in there randomly, um, and so is colon cancer. So um, it's a lovely gift that just keeps on giving. But uh, one of the reasons that um, my doctor did choose to make that we took out um, not just my ovaries, but also my uterus and fallopian tubes and all of that is because of the increased re risk of endometrial cancer. So, and I had already had endometriosis, so took all of that out. Um, and then I got on iBrands, which is a targeted therapy. I got two years of the cancer behaving itself on iBrands. And then um, in August, it mutated, figured out how to get around it. And so I have been on Picray, which is a brand, brand new drug. It was just approved by the FDA in June of this year. Um, so I've been on Picray for a little over three months and I just had a PET scan today, this morning to find out if it's working. Oh gosh. So knock on wood. Yeah. Fingers <laughs> crossed, toes, everything. Yep. yep. I can't imagine getting this diagnosis that you're metastatic, which means we don't have a cure at this point right. when you're 38 and your kids are two and four. Yes. Looking back, I think that I, to a certain extent, I put the emotions in a box and I put it in the back of my mind because we had to make 25 different treatment decisions all in one day with like this much information. Um, and there wasn't time to fall apart. I'm mm -hmm. also from a personality perspective. I'm much better at thinking, solving problems first, and then falling apart later. And that, and that's, I, I, that's what I did. Um, because so much had to be done at first. So much had to be accomplished. So many decisions had to be made. I mean, I had my mom had had breast cancer, but I'd never heard of metastatic breast cancer. Uh, to me, you were stage four and then you died in my uninformed mind before this. And so the concept of living while you're dying was something that was completely foreign. And I certainly have not, not figured it all out, but I think two and a half years in that we have developed coping mechanisms around this. And a lot of it, well, first of all, I'm on antidepressants. I, I don't know how anybody deals with something like this without being on some kind of medication. And frankly, Within a week or so of getting diagnosed, I went to the psychiatrist and I'm like, I, I, I got to have some because um, I'm I was raised in the Midwest. Uh, my family is German. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Just work harder. Like, oh, you didn't succeed the first time. We'll do it right the second time. I mean, that's kind of how that's how I was raised. So there was a lot of that. Like, OK, I'm just going to put my head down and we're just going to get this done. Um, but the emotions are still there. And if I don't deal with them, of course they come out. So, um, antidepressants is a big thing. I think the principles that are taught in yoga, um, mindfulness, um, presence, um, those types of things.
things where you are training your body and your mind to be in the moment, uh, those have been invaluable. I mean, I wish I had started doing yoga a long time ago, frankly. Um, and my kids really do help me stay in the moment. I mean, they're concerned about like they're hungry right now. And what are they going to wear to bed? Like, I mean, it, it's like they're, they're, yes, they have bigger needs than that, but the majority of their needs are so immediate that that really helps me stay in the moment. But I really can only plan from scan to scan. So anything really beyond that, um, sometimes I have inappropriately angry responses to those kinds of things, just because it triggers things like, well, I don't know if I'm going to be there, that sort of thing. So it's hard to, to think about those things. Um, and my kids have had the most amazing birthday parties every year because I'm always thinking this might be the last one. So it has to be mm-hmm. the, the most elaborate and the most perfect. Um, and I, I drive myself a little bit crazy doing that sometimes, but my husband keeps me grounded. <laughs> and how often are you getting scans? So I, um, at first, when you start a medication, the protocol is typically every three months. Um, I was on Ibrantz and stable long enough that I had actually graduated to six month scans. Um, I had two of them until I had a progression. So I'm back to every three months. Um, so that's the, it seems to be the, the pattern is as you're stable, they just move out the scans. So, um, six months, the longest I've been able to go, but I know people that have, they go, they only get scanned yearly. Now they're that stable. Um, those are the unicorns. I definitely want to be one of those unicorns, but I only have a 27% chance of living five years past my diagnosis. Um, and three years is March of 2020. So those are sobering things that I have to look at those things on a daily basis. And with time, it it gets easier to handle in the day to day, but it doesn't mean that it's easy to handle. No. I, yeah, I think you're carrying a lot more than the average young mother. I mean, it, I think it's when your kids are that young, there's so much already that you're dealing with. And right. What, what have you told them about what's going on? So they were so young when I was diagnosed. We didn't tell them a lot of things at the beginning except the general mommy is sick, mommy's going to the doctor. Um, the, the thing that was the, the most important to my four-year-old at the time was that I couldn't run. And he kept asking me, when are the doctors going to fix your run? When are the doctors going to fix your run? Uh, which was so, so cute. But now that he's six um, and, uh, and, and he is gifted, so he, is, he just learns things at a much faster rate. And he is so intuitive and he absolutely picks up on things. And so we've told him that um, more so my six-year-old than my four-year-old, but that mommy has cancer that it's a serious disease, but that nobody can catch it. And that mommy goes to the doctor to feel better, but that there's still some days when mommy doesn't feel good. So they've adjusted and it's been kind of amazing how they've adjusted. Um, We uprooted them because we were in Orlando when I was diagnosed. And uh, 
in October of 2017, we moved from Orlando to Miami and we moved in with my parents. Uh, so my husband, my two kids and I live with my parents. Uh, it's in a three story house. So my parents have a little apartment on the first floor. We share the second floor, which is the kitchen and dining room and living room. And then our bedrooms uh, for my immediate family were up on the third floor. So we have our own space, but then they're able to help. And so I think the excitement of getting to live with grandma and grandpa and, you know, we did as much as we could to make it just super fun. Um, that's helped. It really has that they have all these other people in their lives. Um, I'm the oldest of six kids. So, um, two of my siblings were still here in Miami. They never really left. Um, but my sister who's 18 months younger than I am, she and I have always been the pretty much the closest. We're the closest in age and that, yeah, we're the same sex too. So we also fight, but you know what I mean? Uh, she was living in New York City when I was diagnosed, but she also relocated with her husband and her daughter down to Miami. So there's four out of the six all in one place, which is the most that's ever been in one place since I left for college. So wow. we all scattered. That, even if you like your in-laws, I think that would be challenging to live with them. So how is your husband coping with that? You know, my husband is one of the most gracious human beings I have ever met in my life. And thank God he is, because not only does he have to put up with me, um, yeah, he voluntarily moved in with, with my parents. And, you know, my mom is also the most nurturing person I've ever met in my entire life. And so basically she just moms him all the time. You know, what do I need to get you? And here, let me cook this for you. And um, she has smoothed away so much. Uh, but, you know, my dad and my husband go to work every morning and they work all day. So in a lot of ways, they still kind of have their spaces. Um, and then, yeah, we, we have meals together. Um, but a lot of, we, we really do a lot of things still as just our family. My parents have been very respectful of that space. But with all that being said, it's still not easy. My husband is a saint. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about your advocacy work because you do a lot. I don't really know how to do anything halfway. So I've never done anything halfway my entire life. Um, I think that, I mean, I went to law school. So I basically was, I mean, I had three years of learning how to be an advocate. And then I've been a lawyer since 2002. So I've had a lot of years of being an advocate. So when I began to understand more about the fact that people don't know very much about metastatic breast cancer, that funding for research for metastatic breast cancer is, I don't even know the right word to describe how minuscule it is compared with the impact um, that it's having because in the United States, we have 116 men and women dying every single day of metastatic breast cancer. And yet of all the money allocated to breast cancer, metastatic breast cancer gets, I don't know what the right percentage is because I see all kinds of different statistics, but it's less than 10% for the only kind of breast cancer that is 100% fatal. And so when I learned that, and learned that so many of the big name charities that you think are putting a lot of their money towards research, they're not. And, and some of that is fine, right? Because so many different charities do 
things locally. They'll pay for mammograms. They'll pay for people getting needing a ride to treatment. There's all kinds of things that people need locally. But I learned that there's this, this thought out in the public that these charities are funding research and they are perpetuating that idea. And yet that's not actually happening. And so um, I think you could say that one of my core values is the, the sense of justice. <laughs> And to me, that is fraud. To me, it is not just. To me, you should not be able to claim that you're doing something for a cure, quote unquote, and then giving less than 15% of what you're bringing in to actual research. And of that, maybe about 2% would actually go towards metastatic research. So I learned that information and it frankly just pissed me off. Um, so I have a blog, um, I go places to conferences. Um, frankly, I advocate in every aspect of my life. I will talk, I mean, I talk to the girl that cuts my hair. I talk to the people at the grocery store, talk to the person at the post office the other day. So, you know, it's just, this is, this is my life now. And I am very, very acutely aware that the only reason that I'm alive right now is because of research. Ibrance, the first medication I was on, that was approved by the FDA in 2015, two years before I started taking it. Picray that I'm on now, that was approved in June of this year. So six months before I started taking it, it was approved by the FDA. So to me, there's no clearer example of the only way that my quality of life and my quantity of life are going to be prolonged is because of people who are actually doing the research and figuring out these new pathways and um, new ways of, of managing whichever piece of the equation it is. Um, so I've gotten a huge, uh, huge education. Sometimes I think I should have gone to medical school instead of law school, but you know, here we are. <laughs> but I think your, your law experience is helping so much with the advocacy and for this whole effort. And also you yeah. started a nonprofit. I did. Yes. Yes. So one day in one of my groups, somebody talked about how they had not had the money to do a will and now they wanted to do it and they were just going to go on legal zoom and do that. And, and I lost my mind. And uh, the people in the group did not understand why I, why I was losing my mind. So um, if anybody is listening to this, do not ever use LegalZoom. Um, my nonprofit is called Connect4 Legal Services. And what I do is I recruit lawyers to do pro bono work for stage four patients. Um, it's just been breast cancer patients so far, um, but I, I would like to expand into some of those other arenas because the financial toxicity of being sick here in the U.S. is insane. Um, people who were comfortably middle class will spend their entire life savings on medication and treatment, and there's no money left over for things that they need. Uh, people who already were, you know, living paycheck to paycheck, working minimum wage jobs, Sometimes I don't even know how those people stay alive because it is so difficult. Um, my husband and I are not in that category. We planned very, very well. I have 
lots of disability insurance privately and I get social security disability. So we planned and I still fight with various medical providers at least weekly um, for bills that I don't know. And I know that I don't owe them because I'm a lawyer. And there are things that these companies are doing um, that to make money. And I understand they're all for-profit companies and they deserve to get paid for the work that they did and all of these things. But there's so much fraud and there's so much, um, frankly, just taking advantage of people who are very, very ill. So because I hate injustice, <laughs> um, I don't, I mean, I've helped quite a few people directly just because I know how to navigate some of these things, but um, I haven't been turned down by any lawyers yet. I call them, I tell them the situation. I can get past gatekeepers because I'm a lawyer myself. I explain the situation and at least half of the time they're in tears. Um, we did a wills clinic in Orlando last October. And so we had, uh, I'm forgetting how many, I think it was 16. Uh, Men and women got um, advanced directives and wills, and it was all in one day. They came in, they left, but none of the attorneys that volunteered had ever met anybody with stage four before. And so just sitting with them to try to help them do their will, they were all in tears. So personal stories, that's where it's at. Personal stories change people's minds. Um, I, I don't know how many people I have met who have had family members with breast cancer you start talking about breast cancer and there's a certain amount of, uh, it's not a universal experience, but there are things that most people with breast cancer, especially when they go through chemo and those kinds of things, you talk to somebody who's had a family member go through it and, and they're like, where do I sign up to help? Like, how much do you need? So, um, yeah, so I'm pretty excited about that. It's a lot of fun too. So why do you think it's important for men and women with metastatic breast cancer to have an online community? We are created from the beginning to be in community. Um, there's so many examples of that. Um, you know, the, the concept of no man being an island. Um, the, the value of being able to say one word to somebody and they understand the totality of your experience can never be overvalued. The, the language, especially at the beginning when we're first diagnosed, we don't have the language to explain. I mean, sometimes I'll be feeling something and I don't, I don't even have the language to, to label it. Like I, I cannot even find the right words. I mean, some of that's chemo brain. Um, and menopause also causes cognitive issues. So I, I still have a hard time finding words, but when you're experiencing something for the first time and you don't know how to describe it and you can say to somebody else, oh, I just had that infusion. And they're like, oh, you're feeling X, Y, Z. And you're like, what, how did you know? Are you inside my head? No, it's that there are so many universal things that people experience. And until they talk to somebody who's had a similar experience, they might feel like they're crazy. They might feel like, Something else might be going on. They might be anxious that, is this cancer? Or is it a side effect? Or is it in my head? There are so many of those things that you're not going to be able to know unless you talk to somebody who's going through it. Doctors don't know. I got hundreds of just very practical hacks on how to deal with all kinds of side effects for my cancer groups. I got a binder for my doctors 
I, I mean, I read it. It was like a tiny bit helpful. I would log on to one of the communities online and I would get answers to questions I didn't even know I had. So I cannot stress enough that when you are in another world, when you are thrust into this medical world or or anything, I mean, you get divorced, you have a baby, there are all these times in your life where community is so vitally important. And a chronic illness or an illness that is terminal or an illness that is interfering with your daily life in such a way that is not readily apparent to a healthy person, you have to have people around you who know what that's like. That's not to say that I don't have people in my life who are not, who are healthy or people in my life who are even early stage. And I know that they try and I appreciate so much that they try to understand. There's absolutely nothing that can compete with a friendship with somebody who's metastatic. They just, they just get it. And they're also awake in the middle of the night freaking out. So you can text and make each other feel better. <laughs> I'd like to thank Abigail Johnston for sharing her story. To read more of her experience, visit advancedbreastcancer.net, where you can find articles by her and other contributors. You can find more health communities at health-union.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or a loved one, and consider reviewing the podcast as it helps others find it as well. Thank you for listening to Living With. I'm Emily Downward.